0: Welcome to part two of our discussion featuring myself, your host, Jamie Prater, Patrick Green, Dan Ferlito, and our special guest, Dr. Robin Bunce, a historian based at Homerton College, University of Cambridge. Three words come up to me that, um, things that you've talked about, Dan's talked about, and Robin has talked about, but there's three specific words. Annihilation, desolation, and isolation. And isolation I'll start with because I'm. it's one of the most terrifying things about, say, for instance, Blade Runner or The Road, but it, it seems to be this common denominator among most dystopian stories. The idea that there's no one. There is only us, one or two people, and that's it. And it's certainly something that's very literal that's happening in the story. And I think as a society, what's happening to us because of social media is that that isolation is something that's internal. And one of you guys talked about that. I don't know if it was Dan earlier, that a lot of this this idea of a dystopian society has already begun, and it started off in a, On social media, essentially, where everyone is not as together as much. They're online. So it's an emotional isolation. And then I I think about the film Annihilation. And what's terrifying about that film and what's terrifying about what's happening is that there's this force on Earth coming from this lighthouse and it's destroying and rebuilding the Earth. And no one really knows what's happening, but they want to stop it, but they don't know how to stop it. It's it's also beautiful as well. Um, one specific scene um, that Patrick and I have discussed, there's a scene where there's this bear and it comes into this house and this bear has the voice of this woman that the bear had killed. So you hear this woman scream as the bear screams. It's frightening. It's, but this bear is also being reborn into what we don't know, but it's being reborn. And I, the idea of rebirth is frightening and it's not fun, but it can be beautiful. Um, but it's these three words, annihilation, desolation, isolation. And I feel like they're all connected to each other where it begins with isolation. And then it be, and then next is desolation where you can go in certain countries whether it's india whether it's countries of africa and they are in the throes of desolation or in the throes of annihilation you go to populations in south america whether it's indigenous populations that haven't seen outsiders that much or or at all and what's happening to them annihilation because of The conglomerates coming in saying, no, you know, this is precious soil and we want it. But I feel like all of these things are connected. Um, And what we are experiencing is both isolation and desolation. And I think it's just really important. And and I'm going to pivot to stories like, for instance, uh, Snowpiercer. Um, I can't remember the name of the the, the guy who wrote the story, but that film... I think about quite a bit. I haven't watched it recently, but I think about it all the time and how everything that happened to the rich affected the poor and then everything that happened to the poor eventually affected the rich. Not one thing that happened to the rich did not affect the poor and vice versa. And then what happened in Snowpiercer, the poor found their voice and everything went crazy and the 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 train went off its tracks and I mean, it's, there's so much to discuss in that film. Maybe that'd be a great frame rate film eventually. Um, and then I think about a, a recent film that I've seen on Netflix called The Platform. And it's this film about this prison and there's this big table of food that starts at the top. And this table of food has enough food to fill to feed everyone on the levels. And there's like 202 levels. But by the time it gets to level 30, the food's gone. Um, Until, and these are the poorest of the poor, these are outcasts of society, these are nothings, these are no ones. And in order for them to eat, they had to go to the top and demand equity. They had to demand it. And again, I feel like everything works with everything else. What we're experiencing now... Even though nothing's going to change overnight, we'll we'll probably never be a utopian society. Hopefully, we'll always be moving towards something, moving towards the better angels of our nature, whether that's on a societal level or it's a a socioeconomic level. But we're never going to be there. I mean, there are some you can go to Japan and you can see more equality there. You can see a, a way of life that is just if you go to Japan, it's just. You look at it and you think, how is this on earth? It's crazy. I mean, not to say that they don't have their issues and their problems. They absolutely do. Um, but there's evidence of utopia. There's evidence of equity. And the stories that have affected me the most um, are stories where that inequality terrorizes the poor. It terrorizes them. And then I, I, I think about some of the st- the, stati- the statistics that are coming out about the coronavirus affecting Um, African-American community in ways where it's just crazy, where there's, you know, they said 26% of the population um, in like Alabama are African-American in terms of the infected, but they're 50% of the deaths, or they're 70% of the deaths in in Oklahoma or another state. And the ways that these pandemics and these diseases affect the poorest of the poor, the homeless, like you were talking about. So those stories, like Snowpiercer, the platform, um, what touches me the most about it is that it touches everyone. And I think that's a really important thing to remember as we discuss this, and that everything is connected and that it's it's this domino effect of isolation, desolation, annihilation. And I feel like the the best thing that can come about in terms of what we're experiencing now as a, a world culture is the tearing down of of the walls that allowed this to happen in the first place.
1: The Matrix is a system, Neo. That system is our enemy. But When you're inside, you look around, what do you see, businessmen, teachers, lawyers, carpenters, the very minds of the people we are trying to save, but until we do, these people are still a part of that system and that makes them our enemy. You have to understand, Most of these people are not ready to be unplugged. And many of them are so inert, so hopelessly dependent on the system that they will fight to protect it. Really hard to not go in a political direction, but which which walls and which things are getting torn down is another big question, I think. Because, um, of course, while we are hoping that leadership deals with the infection rates and the death rates and the immediate things that are disproportionately affecting certainly poor people, but families in general, you know, American families, British families, uh, you know, it's a problem in India, it's a problem in Russia, it's a problem everywhere. Um, and, but we also know from history that there's always somebody thinking about don't let a good crisis go to waste, you know, and I, I, see a lots, tons of discussions so I'll speak for the U S where I can speak for the bill of rights and the constitution. Cause I have a somewhat of a broad understanding of how it works. Whereas I can't speak for the UK's people's rights, et cetera. But, um, where people are really concerned from different parts of the spectrum, you'll see the extremes of it's worth people dying in order to preserve our freedom. We cannot let the government take over and start eliminating the bill of rights, even temporarily, because we don't know if, it's going to go back to normal. We don't know if afterwards they're going to lift martial law. Or are they going to just eliminate the fourth amendment and people are going to be able to get searched for whatever. Um, and so there's, you know, especially libertarian constitutionalists are constantly thinking about that, but it's, it's so interesting how that ties into what we're talking about in these dystopias where you see something to that effect, whether it's the government in uh, V for Vendetta um, or 1984 Similar visuals, right? You got these nazi-esque kind of fascist costumes where people are conforming um, And people's lives are being controlled and it's like it's such a It's such a sensitive topic for democracies that even at a time where bodies are piling up in the streets There are people for better or for worse who are also thinking Who is trying to screw everybody over in this thing who is thinking two years ahead About their stocks. I mean, we've seen the insider trading that's gone on (laughs) from certain politicians. Um, But, you know, who is going to make a fistful of cash from this whole thing and put themselves in a higher position of power while the rest of us are down here struggling to steal toilet paper from each other?
2: Which, again, I think reminds me a lot of Mad Max Fury Road, going back to Mad Max for a moment, because that, that whole that whole society is built up on resources, right? So, like, as society degrades, the rich grab the available resources. They grab oil and they grab water because those are the, the two most important forms of currency they have. And they literally sit on top of a mountain that's just a cistern holding the water from everybody down below, right? And it's, like, such a, a perfect evocation of exactly what we're talking about. Like, it's crazy. It's crazy it's crazy that politicians are allowed to fucking trade on the stock market that they have nominally at least some degree of control over. It's fucking nuts. I mean, it's not nice like can...
1: Martha Stewart in jail for that. The rich white lady that like cooks stuff and smiles. She went right. to prison for that. You know, it's like insane what they're getting away with.
2: It's crazy that, that they're even allowed to have multi-million dollar portfolios that they can actively be trading that they know they can influence by changing the news cycle. Like it's, it's not very hard for them to do that. On And in addition to actually having legislative ability to control some things that actually influence the stock market right it, but it's it's just not that big of a of a suspension of disbelief to uh to to think that like in in times of extreme crisis like this or like you know whatever you know comes before the events of mad the mad max films that uh that we would have rich people basically hoarding the resources for themselves and then controlling how it gets put out there. And it's the same way, Jamie, like you were saying with utopias, like with your commune growing up, right? These, this, the, the, it, like I always think, of course, back to Jim Jones and the People's Temple, right? Like that's a perfect example of... A something that was set up to be like the most utopian utopia ever, right? When they finally went to Guyana and it became this idea of like, you know, like we are so progressive and we're so utopian and we're so all about, you know, equality and about finding, you know, togetherness that we're going to move somewhere where nobody can see into what we're actually doing. And then we will all fucking kill ourselves, right? Because this vision can't sustain itself. When in reality, it was just a cover for somebody to basically amass as much power as possible and then exert so much control that the control had nowhere to go but death at the end. And I I really feel like that. Dan, you're absolutely right. A huge trope that we don't talk about very often in the context of dystopian fiction is how the powerful stand to profit from it and how dangerous that can be.
1: I mean, it's it's weird, but the extremes of this type of scenario, there's a reason why all of a sudden more people are talking about politics and more people are thinking about who they voted for, what party's in charge of their state, how is the party in charge of that state, and how are the governors and politicians, um, which are all playing catch-up because in the States, we were all behind on this, the same, Italy, same way Italy was behind, et cetera, um, but in the us it's so the response is so regionalized um compared to england for example which i'll let robin talk about um that you know different states are doing things completely differently some states were packing churches last sunday and will again this sunday and those people are going all over the place wherever they want no border control between states no flight control i mean there are way fewer flights but those people can go wherever they want and cause a second wave of infections right so there's all these different things at play right now and i mean a lot of it is about us letting go of control, right? It's like just to not be in a constant state of panic and freaking out and have, you know, I mean, all three of us on our message thread that we talk about on the regular kind of rotate, having like anxiety attacks. <laughs> One day it'll be James scheduled. Turn it's like, Oh, it's me Tuesday. and Patrick. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, who's going to have a breakdown today and call the other person crying. Like I can't take this anymore. It's fucking crazy. You know? Um, So, yeah, uh, I don't know, Robin, you want to talk a little bit about how you've seen it act in the UK?
3: Oh, um, I have been self-isolating from the news in the UK, so I haven't watched the news for three weeks. Um, um, Partly because I just don't have the time and partly because, you know, I, you know, I, I. it filters through to me the kind of important stuff. I, I have a kind of Darwinian approach to the news. If people are still talking about it in five years' time, mm-hmm. then I guess it was important. I should, I'll pay attention to it. <laughs> if they're not like talking that. about it in five days, in five years' time, I'm you know clearly I, I didn't miss anything. That's my Darwinian <laughs> approach to the news. Um, what I have noticed in the UK is, first of all, um, and this, uh, and, uh, and obviously, I'm constantly thinking about the dystopian trilogy of movies that I will direct before I die. You know, it's, it's just a dead certainty <laughs> that my directorial, d- directorial career will take off any moment now. And what I'm thinking is, there is so much hope in the UK at the moment. So as I'm walking along the empty streets of Cambridge, in every other window, a child has drawn a rainbow or painted a rainbow, and it's in every other window. Okay? That's so And and what I'm thinking, of course, is that would be a beautiful way to start the dystopia, wouldn't it? That dystopian movie, you know, you're walking down the empty streets and what do you see? There are rainbows in every window and then zombies come out of the house. I mean, that's great, isn't it? It's a great kind of setup as it were. So the hope, the hope is just really amazing. And the other thing I would say is it's kind of flipped a whole bunch of narratives, um, because in the past 10 years, the narrative has been you can't have healthcare unless you have the entrepreneurs making the money you can't have decent education unless you have the entrepreneurs making the money that's the narrative it's like you know the entrepreneurs are the important ones and the healthcare is the the kind of luxury that they pay for okay that's flipped every thursday at i want to say seven o'clock in the evening people stand on their doorsteps in empty streets and they applaud for one minute and what we're doing is we're We're applauding the National Health Service and the the doctors and the nurses and the care workers who provide that amazing care. So we're not getting out on the streets every Thursday and applauding the entrepreneurs. We're applauding the doctors and the nurses. And all of a sudden, you know, it's these the doctors and nurses. who have had their pay cut and their pay cut and their hours lengthened and their terms and conditions, you know, destroyed over the past 10 years. These are the people we're now relying on. So. Yeah, I completely get the idea. You don't let a good crisis go to waste, but that can play in two different ways. So right now in the UK, all kinds of ideas, which were unthinkable in December, are now common currency. So the idea of a universal basic income, that's common currency. I remember before um, in, in December, we had a general election here. Um, Jeremy Corbyn, who is the leader of the opposition party, he's analogous to Bernie Sanders in terms of where he stands politically. Jeremy Corbyn was talking about, well, in 10 years time, why don't we have a four day week? Why don't we aim for that? Everybody works four days. Everyone has three days off. And of course, that was ridiculed. Everyone said, well, you can't pay people to do nothing. Um, and of course, that's exactly what's happening now. I am literally being paid to do nothing. Um, and that's true of many, many, many of my friends. Same here. Who, yeah, it's incredible. So again, the whole narrative has has kind of turned on its head. Um, so I mean, I'm an optimist by nature. I spend my life watching dystopian fiction, but in my you know in my heart, I'm an optimist. And so I'm kind of hoping that something progressive and something good comes out of this. Who knows if it will? Um, but that's my perspective on things from the UK.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's something we can always take out of dark times is, okay, let's see how much this is going to suck and let's prepare for what we can and, and et cetera. But, um, I thought the same thing when I've seen people get elected that I did not vote for, I was not stoked about them getting elected. I thought, well, you know, if this person had almost gotten elected, nobody would believe you know, what they could have done would just become part of the ether and they could claim whatever they want about how they would have fixed everything and they would have been the best thing for the country. When that person's actually there, now they have to do it. And so hopefully if things are bungled enough, not that I want things to be bungled, but I'm saying, you know, there's lots of countries right now taking a very close look at their leadership because these emergencies are when leaders shine or fall apart and this is look like I I have a federal job right it's taxpayer paid air traffic control I don't get paid every day to just like work the regular planes and do the regular stuff that any you could teach any like kid to do or whatever right like it's not it's pretty basic in the end it's a whatever I get paid for when the emergency comes in, right? And the plane's on fire or it's missing an engine or an engine's out or whatever it is, right? Like we're the ones who have to, along with the pilots, remain calm and do everything by the book to try and get that plane uh, safely on the ground and save those people, et cetera, right? That's how emergencies work. And that's what we're seeing right now in all these different countries' leaderships. And so it's almost like a stress test of every single country's economy, every single country's leadership, And every single country's political system, whether you believe in a more authoritarian government, we can see how North Korea does with this, since they're probably the most authoritarian government in the world right now. If you want to see how different styles of democracy, whether they're parliamentary or whatever, make it through this, well, let's watch Italy, let's watch the UK, let's watch the US and dozens of other democratic countries, because this thing takes all the veneer off of everything. It shows you all the deepest flaws of your country, its system and the people in it. Right. And then on the flip side, like we're talking about, there's all this hope to look at and to see, well, what is going to happen next time this happens? Are we going to be prepared? Are we going to have learned the lessons that we should have learned this time? I think citizens certainly are more aware of what we ran out of early on and what the government needs to beef up. And we can push on that and hopefully use a system of checks and balances to make sure that those things are getting done. Um, and yeah, your rainbow example, although zombies came out of those houses, but the the, the, the concept of hope in that rainbow um, is certainly there and i think one of the things people can relate to the most which we certainly relate to when we talk about it here is the um empathetic response to where now we kind of all know what it's like to go through this. Now, I don't know what it's like to be fired from my job during this and have to stay home and figure out how to feed my family and really be depending on whether the government gives us aid or you know. There, there's things that I can only experience from my experience, but still, I think there's a unifying factor there where we all know we're going through something similar and we're kind of in it together. Um, and I think that's a really beautiful thing. A visitor. Is that okay? Yes. Yeah.
3: Just unusual. Nice to meet you, Officer KD6-3.7. Sorry. The compromised immune system. A life of freedom, so long as it's behind glass.
0: Philip K. Dick has a, an incredible quote that I want to read. The true measure of a man is not his intelligence or or how high he rises in this freak establishment. No, the true measure of a man is this, how quickly can he respond to the needs of others and how much of himself he can give. And I find that very sacred in this time and I, and I think back to some of the, the the films and the stories that we've been talking about and one there's very, another commonality amongst all of these, most of these stories and it's the people who are affected the most um, in these stories are the poor and the people who've risen up to change the system have been the poor. And I look to see, uh, and if we're gonna talk about hope, which I think it's really, really um, important to talk about hope. And I know Robin, you and I discussed hope uh, briefly when we were texting about this discussion we were having, but the idea that the people who are looked have been looked upon as, the castaways of society the the throwaways whether it's grocery store workers you know doctors and nurses and um people working at restaurants they are now looked at looked upon as essential workers the script has completely flipped completely flipped where the the engine that ran this society or or a lot of world societies ran on ran on these people paying them less getting as much out of them as they they possibly could and paying them less and stretching their hours and paying them less and giving them less. Now these people are being propped up um, and they're being giving hazard pay. And they're, you know, I I don't, you know, I don't know how long yeah, some of them. Um, But, and not only is that happening, you also see in the middle of this pandemic strikes happening from workers saying, you are not taking care of this. Their businesses are already suffering, anyways, because everyone's home, and now they're like, "No, we're shutting you down because you're not even you're not taking care of us." And I, to me, that is the hope, the hope. And I think about um, uh, writers like uh, Victor Hugo, um, who yeah, who wrote Les Mis and uh, the story of the poor rising up and toppling the rich. And I don't think that. It's that literal, but what I do think is that the tide has turned for now, and the people with the power right now are the poor, are the blue-collar people, the people who have historically, in the last 25, 30 years, have not been paid as much. And for me to see... What we've been seeing, like you know, you see videos of people in Italy and they're out on their balconies, and these are the poor people, and they're singing and they're playing their instruments, and people are singing opera, and then you see people in New York City in their buildings, you know, clapping for the nurses and the doctors that are coming home. Um, but these people never see that kind of thing. They never have this kind of attention that they're being given. Because why? Because we give our attention to actors. We give our attention to politicians who don't know what it's like to be one of us and that to me is the hope and it's the reminder of despite everything that we're going through right now this is who we are this is really who the who these societies belong to and then i think more of i, I think you know if you've seen snowpiercer or even Soylent green you realize that what's been pow- what's been fueling these economies are literal people they've been eating them the societies but really i think that's what the danger of dystopia is is that these companies and these conglomerates and these political machines are actually eating people the the pharmaceutical companies and the the health insurance companies are profiting off the death and the sickness of people that's this that's the world that we live in and we're at this place uh in terms of the pandemic that we're all experiencing where do we want to go who do we want to be who do we want to give power to? And for me, that question that we're posed right now, that is the hope. Because the, the at least, I mean, I don't know how things are going to, we could just go back to everyone voting for a certain orange man, you know, in November. We could, go, we could totally just close our eyes and forget that this happened. I don't know. Anything is possible. But the beauty of what's happening right now is that all eyes are on Arrakis, if I can use the term from Dune. The people have the power.
1: You ever been to the tail section? Do you have any idea what went on back there? When we boarded? It was chaos. Yeah, we didn't freeze to death, but we didn't have time to be thankful. Wilford's soldiers came and they took everything a thousand people in an iron box. No food, no water. After a month we ate the week. You know what I hate about myself? I know what people taste like. I know that babies taste best. And then one by one, other people in the tail section started cutting off arms and legs and offering them. It was like a miracle.
3: There's one aspect of dystopias which this year has given me hope. Um, So at the beginning of the year, I was reading for this course Politics of the Future, and I came across this quote by an intellectual called Frederick Jameson, and the quote struck me as very, very stark and really depressing um don't worry this gets more hopeful but i'll start with the depressing bit so he says i think it's in 1989 or maybe it's in 1992 but it's something we're somewhere around that he says it's easier today to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism okay so he says this is why we have dystopias because you know that's what we can do okay anyway fast forward to 2012 i think um and he revisits this idea And he says maybe what we're doing when we're imagining the end of the world is we are imagining capitalism okay so his point is that the work we are doing in writing dystopian fiction and discussing dystopian fiction and watching dystopian fiction the work we are doing is analyzing capitalism and So dystopian fiction, going back to the point of vocabulary that Patrick raised, dystopian fiction is, in a sense, giving us the vocabulary that we have lacked for the past 30 years to analyze the world we live in and to start to think about a better world. So, yeah, so that's my kind of story of hope. Maybe what we're doing with dystopian fiction, maybe the effort we're putting into it and the time we're devoting to it is going to have a positive political outcome in the end, because it's helping us to understand the world we live in.
0: Dylan Thomas as a poet, he lived between 1914 and 1953, he died very young. He has a great poem that was used in, um, I I don't know if it was the original, but certainly the remake of Solaris, uh, directed by Steven Soderbergh. And the title of the poem is, and death shall have no dominion. And I felt like it was really powerful in these times that we're living in, so I wanted to read it. And death shall have no dominion. Dead men naked, they shall be one. WITH THE MAN IN THE WIND AND THE WEST MOON, WHEN THEIR BONES ARE PICKED CLEAN AND THE CLEAN BONES GONE, THEY SHALL HAVE STARS AT elbow AND FOOT, THOUGH THEY GO MAD THEY SHALL BE sane. THOUGH THEY SINK THROUGH THE SEA THEY SHALL RISE AGAIN, THOUGH LOVERS BE LOST, LOVE SHALL NOT, AND DEATH SHALL HAVE NO DOMINION, AND DEATH SHALL HAVE NO DOMINION, UNDER THE WINGS OF THE SEA, THEY LYING LONG SHALL NOT DIE WINDLY, TWISTING ON RACKS WHEN SINEWS GIVE WAY, strapped to a wheel yet they shall not break faith in their hands shall snap in two and the unicorn evils run them through split all ends up they shan't crack and death shall have no dominion and death shall have no dominion or waves break loud on the seashores where blue a flower may a flower no more lift its head to the blows of the rain though they be mad and dead as nails head of the characters hammer through daisies break in the sun till the sun breaks down and death shall have no dominion. Strangely enough, or coincidentally enough, I never knew this, but that poem from an equally dystopian science fiction film, legitimate science fiction film known as interstellar hosts another one of his poems. Do not go gentle into that good night. It's by the same author. And it's this strange message of darkness and the hope Comes from darkness, and I find it so beautiful, especially now. I mean, the, the, Dylan Thomas's words really bring me hope um, because he's validating what we're going through or what people. Because when he wrote these poems, the world was an equal chaos World War II. I mean, so many things had happened, um, whether he was born. Um, right right during the beginning of World War One, He was growing up during the middle of World War Two, And so life was just, the world was on fire then, much like it feels like it's on fire now. And he validated all of those things while also saying, there's a way through. There's a light at the end of this tunnel. And I, I, I just, I think that isn't really needed right now.
2: You know, while we're on the theme of modernist poets talking about um, the ends of things, can I read a little passage from one of my favorite poems of all time? Sure. So it's 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 from *The Wasteland by T.S. Eliot, which I'm sure people are familiar with. But the, it's it's one of the one of one of the early stanzas. I, I just pulled it up. <clears throat> it goes, what are the roots that clutch? What branches grow out of this stony rubbish? Son of man, you cannot say or guess. For you know only a heap of broken images where the sun beats and the dead tree gives no shelter, the cricket no relief, and the dry stone no sound of water. Only there is shadow under this red rock. Come in under the shadow of this red rock, and I will show you something different from either your shadow at morning striding behind you or your shadow at evening rising to meet you. I will show you fear and a handful of dust. I've always thought that was like such an evocative way to talk about the ends of things and to talk about death. And, and uh, the wasteland in general is just—it's an extraordinary, um, you know, sort of epic poem that talks about the ends of things and talks about prophecy and it talks about Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. It talks about this need for peace and this need for rebirth in the midst of such degradation and such defilement. Um, and I, I, I've always thought Dylan Thomas and T.S. Eliot were kind of um, Kindred Spirits in a lot of ways, although their poetry was quite different. Um, and and the, way, the Wasteland, to me, that, that's a poem that I really fell in love with in college, and that has, I, I still re- actually was just reading it two weeks ago because uh, we were packing up our things. We're going to be moving pretty soon, and, uh, and I had the annotated edition of it, and I was going back through it and thinking how real it felt. Whereas when I was like this, you know, doe-eyed 21-year-old picking it up at the college bookstore, you know, it was just this sort of romanticized idea of, you know, hindu gods and you know forests burning and now um, it's like feels like i'm reading some sort of um something that's actually a diary or something you know something that 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 i might have written in a fever dream you know it's it's the context of the world has changed so much in such a short amount of time that all of these incredible works of apocalyptica feel uh like too disturbingly real to feel like i mean Going back to what we were saying forever ago at this point about escapism versus, you know, reality versus speculativity or speculativeness, like, it doesn't feel like any of that now. It feels, like, literal. It feels real. And uh, and I know that there will come a time, Jamie, like you were saying, when we will kind of have moved past this a little bit and it will become less immediate and less urgent and it will feel like an episode. But, but like, right now it doesn't feel like an episode, you know. Like, right now it doesn't feel like anything feels forever other. Right now. It just feels like life. Like, it... And I was talking with Micah about this just today, um, you know, because, of course, there's these things on the radio about, like, you know, when can businesses reopen? Like, you know, who are the first people who are going to step foot in a restaurant again going to be, you know, like who's going to. And we were talking about how, like, this whole time she's been in nursing school, which is why she's not on the on the show right now is because she's, of course, trying to finish her last three weeks of schooling. You know, this whole time we've had this goal that the first thing we were going to do when she was finally done is we were going to take a vacation and we were going to go to Disney World and we were going to specifically go to this to the Star Wars stuff you know at Hollywood Studios. and that that was like everything was kind of leading towards that. And now, of course, it's all closed. And her program is now, she has to wait to be able to take her exams because there's such a backlog because they had to close the exam centers and all these things. So like so now we're thinking, well, I guess the earliest we could probably go would be September. And then I was thinking, like I'm not going to feel comfortable going to Disney World in September. Like I I don't know. I can't picture that being comfortable. I can't picture this backlog when it finally opens up and people can go do things again. I can't picture feeling the way that I ever felt before. We were talking about how if we were going to try that, we would have to pack a bag that would have quarantine things in it, that would have medical supplies, that would have a mask, it would have gloves, and it would have sanitary materials, which seems crazy. Like if if, if somebody had said that four months ago, I would have I would have thought they were just some sort of doomsday, you know, survivalist or something. But that's like we were all going to be doing that now. We are all going to have that space in our closet where we keep the fucking masks that we're wearing every day, where we keep our antiseptic materials like yeah, that, I that, do. that is going to be just part of the, of the, of the banality of our daily lives. Now will be this, this little bit of extraordinary pain and extraordinary change that we metamorphosed through accidentally in the spring of 2020 that just came and just fucking knocked us on our asses and changed us forever. And so f- just going forward, like, you know, like this will one day, like I was saying, this will look like something we kind of went through. But at this point, while we're actually in it, it feels like just like it it, it will never leave us again. And 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 I really think this will have enormous implications, like a, few, a couple of you were saying earlier, on how we talk about the apocalypse, how we talk about dystopia, how we talk about Fiction in general how, how we create movies like there will never be a time like like Robin something you were saying about the, the rainbows like that really hit me hard because we drew rainbows in our driveway with the kids and that was something that we did specifically so the neighbors would see it when they went out you know on their lonely sojourns into the woods avoiding other humans they would see rainbows outside right there's a sign that that the town committee put up overlooking the main street in our in our you know tiny town that says we're all in this together. And it's just, normally that's the place where like the, you know, the, the code you have to use to get the tax information on the website goes. And it just, instead of anything like that, it just says we're in this together. And I'm thinking like, that was totally unexpected for me. That was something that I did not anticipate. And I don't know why, because I'm a pretty optimistic person too. I did not expect things to be that proactively positive for other people's mental health sake. I didn't expect so many friends to check in with me this regularly. I didn't expect to have the impulse to check in with people. I didn't expect to be calling friends in New York to see if they're okay just out of the blue and having three-hour conversations with them. I I didn't like, that was not something that fit into my vocabulary of what the dystopia would look like. That was not something that I had any expectation of and yet here we are living through whatever this is, however long this will last for, and finding really tremendous outpourings of positivity and love and, and light and, um, and I think that you will never see a time now where speculative or apocalyptic fiction is written that doesn't include some elements of that. Like if, if The Walking Dead were made for the first time now, it would include rainbows in the windows. Like there's no going back from this because we've actually lived in the contemporary modern digital social media web 2.0 age. We've lived through something that feels like a real, true, epoch-defining moment. Um, and, and it's a moment that happened to everybody basically all at once in the span of a couple of months. And that is just extraordinary. And I feel like all of these movies we're talking about will feel if not dated at least of a before period after going through this and what that next or during or after period is going to look like is something that is going to be just completely extraordinary.
0: Interesting that you say that Patrick, as I've seen commercials lately, like I saw a commercial for a restaurant and all these people were in this restaurant and I was like, that was what, what that is what life was like before. Like so and I saw like part of Vertigo and the other day and all these people were on the street and I was looking even at films from the fifties like and seeing people all together and I'm like, When will this happen again? How long is it gonna take for us to be able to share space without a mask? Like it's just contextualized or recontextualized everything and it's it will be fascinating to see what what stories come out of this. Um, I, I'm a little frightened, to be honest with you. Not maybe literally frightened, but emotionally frightened about what the stories, these stories might be. Um, I, and I think because so much of there's very specific world powers in power mm-hmm. that don't have the people's interest at heart, not to say that the other party is perfect and. Flawless because a lot of these dual parties, as you see in the UK or America, they're equally corrupt in their own way. So I, it's not to say, oh, the Democrats are are, are in power, or things are better or whatever, but it's hard for me to see, especially because who has political power right now, where we go from here, what these stories tell. And then you think about like the man in the high castle and um, even though that was speculative fiction, if the Nazis won, in some ways, elements that are, of that are true. In some ways, the, there are elements of The Handmaid's Tale that are true, that ring true. And that's why it scares us, because it rings true.
1: At the top of your page of quotes that you prepped for the episode, there's a Philip Dick quote. And I was reading it today before the episode, and it really struck home when I was reading it. Um, so I think I'll, I'll start with that one, if that's okay. Today we live in a society in which spurious realities are manufactured by the media, by governments, by big corporations, by religious groups, political groups. So I ask in my writing, what is real? Because unceasingly we are bombarded with pseudo realities manufactured by very sophisticated people using very sophisticated electronic mechanisms. I do not distrust their motives, I distrust their power. They have a lot of it, and it is an astonishing power, that of creating whole universes, universes of the mind. I ought to know I do the same thing.
3: So this is a quote from J.G. Ballard, and it's from an essay he wrote in 1962 called Which Way to Inner Space? And it's the last sentence, which I think is particularly striking. So Ballard writes, I think science fiction should turn its back on space, on interstellar travel, on extraterrestrial forms of life, galactic wars, and the overlap of these ideas that spread across the margins of nine tenths of science fiction magazines. The biggest developments of the immediate future will take place not on the moon or Mars, but on Earth. And it is inner space, not outer space that needs to be explored. The only truly alien planet is earth. I'll go ahead and just share
2: uh, another passage from the wasteland towards the end, if that's okay, because I I just feel like that's a really um, evocative. It it speaks to how I feel right now. Um, And and, uh, the final section, Elliot writes in this decayed hole among the mountains in the faint moonlight, the grass is singing over the tumbled graves about the chapel. There is the empty chapel. Only the winds home. It has no windows and the door swings. Dry bones can harm no one. Only a cock stood on the roof tree. Cocorico, Cocorico, In a flash of lightning. Then a damp gust, bringing rain. Ganja was sunken and the limp leaves waited for rain while the black clouds gathered far distant over Himavant. The jungle crouched, humped in silence. Then spoke the thunder.
0: I have a great quote from George Orwell, which is from his book, 1984. It was possible no doubt to imagine a society in which wealth in the sense of personal possessions and luxuries should be evenly distributed while power remained in the hands of a small privileged caste but in practice such a society could not long remain stable for if leisure and security were enjoyed by all alike the great mass of human beings who are normally stupefied by poverty would become literate and would learn for themselves and would learn to think for themselves And when once they had done this, they would sooner or later realize that the privileged minority had no function, and they would sweep it away. In the long run, a hierarchical society was only possible on a basis of poverty and ignorance.
2: I think Orwell knew what he was
0: talking about. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So did Dick. So
1: eerie to read some of those.
0: Yeah, that quote from Orwell—that's the
3: heart of the message of 1984. I love that quote; it's just stunning.
0: Well, I think that this conversation um, or series of discussions are probably will keep happening, and I think feel like the basis of our discussions with Blade Runner is the discussion of who are we and what is a real experience, what is a uh, uh, a genuine experience, and I feel like we're relearning that right now. We're relearning. Um, how real the world is, how real life is. Uh, so much of, at least for me, because most of my best friends live in either Oakland or Massachusetts, um, I I live online a lot. I have my connections online. And this thing that we're going through is what is it doing for me and me and at least my friends is drawing us closer together. Um, and uh, I I, yeah, I just feel like there's no end to this conversation. There's just a pause to it.
1: I just realized – you can cut this out if you want. I don't know if it fits at the end, but it just made me think that um, in terms of empathy and emotion and how we relate to other people, isn't it true that we are kind of living – depending on how the situation is in your particular country, we're kind of living a version of Westworld that's just not quite as extreme. We're not walking around shooting each other yet or trying to be in a situation where we can like do whatever we want because there's no rules in society anymore, but we are in a situation where people are finding themselves like fist fighting over the last containers of toilet paper in a Costco. Um, Or when people are going out of their way to buy groceries and drop them off for the elderly who it's safer for them to not go outside. What I mean is there's a very white hat, black hat question that, I don't think we have to ask ourselves as like, who am I necessarily? Like once, I think it's something we ask ourselves every day in this situation. What's the right thing to do in that situation? What's the right thing to do? Things that our conscious makes us think about all the time anyways. But in this particular scenario, we know a lot more about the things that person you don't know is going through than we would normally, which brings me back to Patrick a little bit, because, um, in his, this is water speech, your favorite author talks about that concept, right? About how you're treating someone else when you don't know what their life is like, what their day was like. And it's kind of like, well, assume that they are going through some hardship and like be kind if you can. And I think that right now that evidence is being shoved in our face all the time, the homeless guy that I drive past all the time that when I have it, I have an extra beer, I have an umbrella and it's right. You know, I have an extra one, you know, I'll give him stuff when I can. Um, and when I pass him now, I'm like, should I wish I had a mask to give him? I wonder if he's getting information. Does he know where to get help? Does he know what's going on? Is he aware of what a hospital looks like if he gets injured right now and has to go to an ER? Like, who's helping him out, who's talking to him. And you know, it's just like there's thousands and millions of those situations all over the world. And this event is really forcing us to look at that and I think it's harder to ignore sort of the extremes of society in this particular scenario because you notice the person who's selling off stocks and making money off of tragedy and you know the person who has no home to isolate themselves to and who normally lives in this dystopia that we're talking about that like the underprivileged already live in where they're living in a tent city underneath a bridge that's that's reality for them you know it's it's just kind of crazy how much this event is putting things in perspective
0: and with that i say we wrap i feel like it's not really an ending but i don't think there is an ending i think it's an ongoing discussion but i couldn't have had it with better people so thank you robin for staying up so late. Thank you, Robin. So early. Thank you. Uh, You're a treasure. Thank you. We wish you would be on the show more. We are going to have Robin on our show coming up for Shoulder of Orion. We're going to talk about his book, The Philosophy and Blade Runner 2049, which will be exciting. We'll be recording that in the next couple of weeks. Um,
3: I am massively looking forward to that. Once I get this book I'm working on off my desk, the world will be my my oyster or my lobster. I don't know, whatever the metaphor is. Um, But yeah, so... (laughs) at that point i'm going to devote my life to blade runner again um yeah yeah sorry to have been off the radar for a while yeah um george orwell says that writing a book is like trying to conquer a deadly disease you know one of us is going to win. It's going to be me or the book. It's going to be me or the disease. I'm hoping it's going to be on me on this occasion. <laughs> but anyway, it's lovely Let's to spend some time with you. you. Let's hope it's you on both counts. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Fingers yeah. crossed yeah. for that you one. Just, you know, know what would
0: be a great episode, though, Robin? The brutalism uh-huh. of Blade Runner 2049. Oh, we could do a whole goodness. episode on that. On, the <laughs> just, on call it, just
1: call it Cement in 2049. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's That'd be it. awesome.
0: That, that, well, that's I'm my kind of utopia. Well, that's interesting, too. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, thank you guys for taking part in this and for recording this again, Dan and Patrick. Um, yeah, great I,
1: idea, Jamie, glad we did it. And,
0: yeah, Jamie, thank you for convening us on this
2: kind of unorthodox show. I think it's been a really healthy discussion and, and it's, and it's leading to more conversations that I hope we have for years to come. So I hope so. Thank yeah. You.
0: Sometimes I tell the boy old stories of courage and justice, difficult as they are to remember. All I know is the
3: child is my warrant. And if he is not the word of God, then God never spoke.